The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome to the Utah Symphony's Ghostlight Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm your host, Jeff Counts, and I'm joined today by Travis Peterson. He's principal trumpet of the Utah Symphony. Welcome, Travis. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you. So, Travis and I know each other pretty well, so there's no telling where this conversation will go, but I want to start by getting him to comment on the stereotype of his position, because we're talking about principal trumpet, and that means something in the orchestra. Someone once described that position to me as the king of the orchestra, and I think they were talking about the ability of the principal trumpet to sort of set and establish the sound of the brass section and in many ways of the orchestra. And I I thought that was apt. And when I shared it with another colleague, that colleague shook his head and said, no, no, no. They're kings that think they're gods. So it's a great quote. <laughs> I think so too. So let's talk about the stereotypical reputation of this job. You're a very measured, humble guy. You're not a person who fancies himself a deity, but do you have to have a certain kind of personality to be the principal trumpet of a major symphony orchestra? I think so, and I think uh, I think it sort of stems from an, an inherent sort of place in each person and mm-hmm. obviously each principal trumpet player that i know and i know quite a few of them i'm sure yeah, um yeah. I, you, they're all different personalities but i think the biggest thing is the confidence level that each of those individuals have and i think that's sort of where the sort of god concept comes <laughs> or king of brass sure or whatever. sure yeah i'm sort of reluctant to label myself that way sure. because i i sort of have strong feelings about this this whole concept of mm-hmm. of the principal trumpet player being the king of the brass or mm-hmm. the king of the orchestra right. whatever you want to say and just to reiterate this is not something you've ever said Right. <laughs> no, I've definitely heard people say it before, but yeah. I've never, yeah. you know, like called myself that. Right, but, right. I, I want to um, give full disclosure there. Sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'm sort of reluctant to label myself that way sure. only because um, I don't like conflict. Mm-hmm. I don't like stepping on people's toes. I don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings who, who might think that they're, you know, also the king of sure. you know the brass or the king yeah. of the orchestra or whatever sure, sure. um but i think that the principal trumpet player needs to be assertive in how they're approaching their position and the music um and following the conductor or listening to the ensemble and actually setting the tone um well tone in terms of my tone production but yeah. just setting the backdrop of what the orchestra should be sounding like mm-hmm. or what the brass section should be sounding like mm-hmm. um in an ideal world and I've played with some big orchestras that, you know, the principal trumpets are like this. In an ideal world, you know, everybody else sort of like um, is listening to the principal trumpet player and they're trying to do whatever they can to match what the principal trumpet player is doing. Right. You know, it's kind of an ebb and flow type thing. And sometimes um, I'm not the center of attention. And that's totally fine with me. Sure. I actually don't like being the center of attention, just my personality. Um, I'm fine playing a solo from the stage and mm-hmm. like doing that sort of thing, but yeah. it's a, uh, it's sort of awkward for me to, you know, be that way. Well, let's let's be honest. It's the kind of it's the kind of position in the orchestra based on tessitura and potential power. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could change things from night to day or back again just based right. on what's in your part. Exactly. And there's just a, there's a lot of responsibility to make a significant amount of sound, right? And to sort of carry the emotional weight of a piece. It. it there's a there's often a lot of pressure in your job. Yeah, absolutely. Not even just like sort of creating the emotional palette of what the orchestra should be doing at that point. Um, you know, oftentimes 
well, not oftentimes, sometimes, I mean, I'll hear the orchestra, what it's doing in terms of its tempo or its pulse. And if we have a guest conductor or who, whoever's on the podium, if the orchestra, if it's doing something really complicated, I'll key into what Madeline's doing, our concert master. Sure. I'll watch her bowings. Like mm-hmm. uh, the other week we were doing Tristan and Isolde right. with Mark Wigglesworth, who was amazing. I love working fantastic concert. Yeah. And yeah, it was a great concert yeah. also. I mean, beautiful, gorgeous music. But at the very end of the piece, it's uh, sort of this sublime, beautiful, amazing musical moment. Mm-hmm. It's like one of my favorite musical moments yeah. ever yeah. Um, when it sort of wanes down and it comes to a close. But we have these sort of ambiguous attacks that happen yeah. or entrances and I was watching Madeline like the whole time. I was mm-hmm. watching Madeline or I was trying to key into what David Yavrinitsky, our principal bass, mm-hmm. was doing because we we basically attacked at the same time, same, same time that they did their pizzicato um, or I tried to see what Eric was doing on timpani yeah. like out of my peripheral vision. So it's 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 not always about the sort of emotional palette like I was saying. It's about trying to make sure that I'm leading in a way that it's going to make the entire package coherent yeah. and actually sound the, the best it sure. can sound. It sounds know? like you understand that part of leadership in this setting means that you innately understand that you're not the only leader and that it's your job to connect with all the leaders. Yeah, exactly. I mean, everybody's super respectful. Sure. And if somebody asks me to do that at the same time, too, you know, like if if Lori, you know, asks me to play something differently or she wants it to be a little subtly, um, you know, quieter or whatever, mm-hmm. I'm happy to oblige to do that. Sure. I'm not, I'm not a stick in the mud in terms of like my interpretation. Right. Um, you know, like the way I play it, it has to be that way. It's, you know, I, I like to think I'm flexible. I'm sure it's very delicate work too, because every single person in the orchestra was a principal something at some time somewhere. Sure. So everybody's got strong opinions. Everybody is uh, an accomplished musician. So mm-hmm. Navigating that minefield, I'm sure, can be challenging. And, and I'm curious how this carries over into your non-artistic work with the orchestra, because you've not been here a terribly long time, but you've already participated quite a bit with non-artistic committees, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. doing really great work shaping the orchestra's life and keeping things smooth between management and your colleagues. So do you think being a principal player and being thrust into a leadership role right away when you got here has helped you be a better committee member? And how? It's an interesting question. I, I think it does help me be a, a good committee member, like specifically on orchestra committee. Yeah. Um, I'm not on it this year, but I was on for the past couple of years. But um, I think, I think uh, more to the point, I think my personality sort of just lends itself to being a, uh, a decent committee member, yeah. more so than me being a principal trumpet player. I, I see. Only because yeah. I'm, I'm kind of a laid back person. Mm-hmm but I'm kind of a no BS type mm-hmm. person. Yeah. So if I, you know, I mean, I like things to be simple and I like things sure. to be straightforward. Yeah. I don't want to complicate things or like overthink things. Right. I mean, I guess that's related to my position as principal trumpet. I think so. Absolutely. I do not like to overthink things. And you have to communicate directly and quickly. And exactly. Yeah. And I need to spin on a dime and mm-hmm. change things quickly yeah. too. Right. Obviously in terms of the music that I play. If, if it's requested differently. But mm-hmm. I don't like to overthink things because then I get sort of stuck in my head and 
um, in the moment is not when I want to be thinking about things like that. Sure. There's, there's a time and a place for overthinking things and sure. like dissecting things and like taking, taking things apart, a musical passage, or even on a committee meeting, you know, like having an in-depth discussion and conversation with just the committee before we get with the management. So like we're all on the same page mm-hmm. and we can flesh out all the different ideas. And I definitely do that when I'm, you know, preparing a piece. Yeah, you're you describing know. practice time. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess that, yeah. That's definitely relatable. It's, it's funny thinking about the principal trumpet thing because before I won this job, I was in New World Symphony down right. in Miami Beach, mm-hmm. um, which is officially called America's Orchestral Academy. Right. And it's sort of a postgraduate thing. Yeah, kind of a training professional exactly, orchestra. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I loved my time there, but I was literally just taking every audition for every opening that was available. Sure. So I was taking principal trumpet auditions. I was taking associate principal trumpet auditions. I was taking second auditions. I was taking section auditions. Mm-hmm, like just mm-hmm. anything that was there, I was there at the audition because yeah. that's how I was building my confidence. So I wasn't like gunning after a principal trumpet position. I just happened to play the best at this audition and I won the audition. And, right. Um, right. I think that I do a pretty good job at it I personally. Would agree. But, I would agree. Um, you know, I'm not going to say that I'm the best principal trumpet player in the world, um, or even in America, but yeah. you know, if somebody wants to put that label on me, that's fine. Okay. But I don't need that label. Well, the Ghostlight podcast will put that label on you. <laughs> you don't have to Thank do you. that for yourself. Thank you. Let's talk about what you've done since you got here, because sure. I, I mean, it's, it's a rare experience in a principal, principal trumpet player's life to play all of the Mahler symphonies yeah. and you've already done it. Absolutely. You've already played them all. We've uh-huh. recorded two of them. Uh-huh. What's that been like for you? I mean. Because these are such big yeah. trumpet pieces. I mean, so most of the Maulers, well, I love Mahler first and foremost. Yes. I just, I mean, as a brass player, it's hard to not. Me too. You know, I'm um, with you. Initially, obviously, when I first heard Mahler, you know, when I was in drum corps, mm-hmm. you know, 15 years ago, I thought it was a snooze fest. I didn't, I didn't get it. <laughs> but uh, I guess now that my palate has changed a little bit yes. as a musician, I don't know, or it's developed more. Yeah. I, I just think it's some of the most transformative music that exists Mm -hmm. so and there's a lot of great stuff for brass to offer in it but um you know playing all nine Mahler symphonies over the you know past two seasons has been a dream come true of a dream that I didn't know that I had that's a great Uh, way to put it you know we started two years ago Two and a half years years ago, at this point, I guess we we started we did them in chronological order one yes. two three four five six seven eight nine. Yep. And so we started with one, mm-hmm. and I had never played one before, and we recorded it also. Yeah. Um, I think it turned out nicely. Yeah. Um, and I think that if we were to record it now again, I think it would be completely different. After having know? been through the whole journey. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the orchestra just plays at a, you know, a different level now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm proud to say that. It's been know? a very, very interesting two and a half years to watch the growth. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I mean, from your perspective, you see it and yeah. I see it from my perspective right. too. And I, I think it's something that we should all be very proud of and excited about. But Certainly. Mahler one was tough because we had just gotten off three weeks of, you know, our summer vacation essentially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we just came back and dove right into the deep end. And all of a sudden we're, Playing Mahler One, which is not an easy piece with I mean, mi- with microphones in your face, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it was interesting um, yeah. for me personally. I'm not the proudest of that uh-huh. recording. Uh-huh. That's my personal take on just uh-huh. my performance. Okay. Fast forward to two years later when we did Mahler Eight. Yes. And. Mahler 8 was one of those sort of uh, dream pieces for me. That so few people get to do it exactly. because it's so difficult to it's, pull off. It's probably going to be the only time in my career. 
It could be the it, only time in my career that I've It's I very possible. I mean, that that's probably one of the, my top five musical moments ever yeah. in my life. Yeah. Not even just with the Utah Symphony, mm-hmm. just because of the sheer scope of it and yeah. all of the work that I had put into it, all the times that I had listened to, like, mm. say, the San Francisco recording, sure. which is amazing. Sure. Just kind of prepping for it. Like, before I knew that we would e- we were even going to record it or play it, yeah. I would sit at home and listen to it and follow along in yeah. the score or the trumpet part and just be like, wow, this is a beast of mm-hmm. a piece. It really is. And it is. Yeah. Um, sort of just gives me goosebumps and chills because it yeah. was, I mean, it was obviously with the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, which is a fantastic ensemble. It was in the Tabernacle, which is a really unique sort of acoustical environment, but um, it was just a really neat kind of space to be in yeah. and... Um, I, I felt like the orchestra was on its game the whole time, and um, I loved it. I, I, thought th- it was I think it's interesting that you found these two kind of hallmark experiences in this journey that sort of relate to what it is to take a journey, which is the one experience was an acknowledgement of that, that there was work to be done, mm-hmm. and the other was kind of a mountaintop experience. Right, I exactly. think it's interesting that the Mahler symphonies are capable of encompassing range in that way yeah. in all parts of your life, not mm-hmm. just listening or performing. I, I think it's great. Yeah. Now, you let a little secret out of the bag a second ago when you alluded to drum corps, <laughs> and I'm going to talk to you about that because sure. if you want it to be a secret, too late. But I know that you have a great affinity for drum corps. Absolutely. And so I'm curious, when did this begin for you? Did you march and for who? And how do you sure. get your fix now? I mean, uh, I grew up in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And a really small rural town north of the Twin Cities, like an hour. So my high school band program, before I was in high school, actually, I was in eighth grade. And my sister, you know, she was in high school a few years older than I was. And the high school band director at, at that point, Leon Sieve, he had marched with the Madison Scouts in the late 80s, early mm-hmm, 90s. Mm-hmm. I had gone to the DCI finals in Madison, Wisconsin in 1992. Sure. Right. But I thought, I don't think it really made an impression on me. Yeah. I was nine at that point. So, like, it just didn't do anything for me. So fast forward a few years later, when I was in eighth grade, and, and Mr. Sieve, he lent me his VHS tapes of the 1989 finals, the 1991 finals, and uh, 95 finals. I just immediately became obsessed with it, um, especially the Madison Scouts. They oh, had yeah. some Latin shows, some sort of Broadway shows. They did this uh, show called City of Angels mm-hmm. that I just loved. I would basically like be in the band room every day after school playing their CDs basically and like trying to play along with them. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the starting, uh, the sure. start of the obsession of drum corps. And I really like my life goal at that point was to get into the Madison scouts. Huh? My high school didn't do field shows. We just mm-hmm. did summer marching band and uh, like in parades. So sure. like I had in drum corps, if you don't know what it is, it's basically like a 12 minute, um, halftime show right? In, yeah. in a way. I mean, yeah. that that's sort of oversimplifying it, but that's basically what it is. But it's like super intricate and really hard and complicated, right? Um, but super entertaining at the same time. Yeah, You're basically running your butt off for 12 minutes on the football field. And I had no experience doing that. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, mm-hmm. what am I going to do? Because I mean, I can play the trumpet, but mm-hmm. I can't, I don't know any of these marching techniques or anything. So right. Right. I joined this Division Two core at that point. It was called Capital Sound. It was based out of, out of Madison, Wisconsin. So mm-hmm. I did that the summer of 1999 just to sort of gain experience doing it. Sure. And then I auditioned that fall after that summer for the Madison Scouts, got in. And oh, you made it. Yeah, I made it. That's and great. I mean, it was, it was, I was floored. Yeah. You know, I was uh, second soprano, second trumpet. We yeah. called them sopranos then. Yeah. I loved it. I thought it yeah. was amazing. You know, I got to travel all over the United States every summer. I did yeah. it for five years, which is a long time. 
Um, and I ended up being sort of the horn sergeant and uh-huh. like section leader, you know, in yeah. my fifth year. Um, and I was a soloist and, uh, it was crazy. He, yes, ladies and gentlemen, he just did say horn sergeant. And <laughs> if you've ever, you've heard the term band nerd your whole lives, right. you've just had it defined for you. <laughs> yeah. 100%. I'm the biggest band nerd there is. I mean, basically like, so that all happened and now fast forward, you know, 15 years later. Yeah. How do you get your fix now? Now I get my fix. So like every summer in August, like the first week of August, usually it lines mm-hmm. up. That's mm-hmm. when the DCI finals is drum corps international. That's when their finals happen. And right. they're in Indianapolis every year. Um, and they broadcast their quarterfinals, um, in the movie theaters, like all over the United States. Right. So you're still getting to experience it. I still do it. Yeah. And then I stream YouTube on my TV at home occasionally and, uh, watch some drum corps shows. I, I really like what drum corps is now, even today. Like it's, it's changed drastically from when I was in it. I mean, there's like, there's amplification, there's synthesizer stuff. And I mean, there's some old school thought that that shouldn't be in it, but it doesn't bother yeah. me. You know, yeah. like I think it's still really entertaining. I think the horn lines, the sound and, you know, the sort of capabilities that they're putting out, you know, the shows that they're putting out are unbelievable. So like, you have to super impressive. Yeah. If you've never seen this, folks, you have to imagine the best high school or even college marching band halftime show you ever saw. Imagine that twice the size played by young professionals not amateurs, mm-hmm. and directed by J.J. Abrams or something. I mean, it's right. just, it's on a level that you can't even imagine. Yeah, so they're, they're actually judged, and it's yeah. it's a competition, and right. it's the, there's this thing called general effect. We call it right. GE. Right. So, like, the general effect or GE value of yeah. every show is, like, through the roof, yeah. usually. Yeah, Occasionally you get, like, a snooze of a show, but, yeah. like, generally you just want to stand up and cheer because yeah. it's loud, it's in your face, yeah. you know, it's emotional. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean... Kind of full circle here, like drum corps was the gateway drug for me to get into classical music. I I was a band guy, obviously. Mm-hmm. I was in marching band mm-hmm. when I went to Indiana University for my undergrad, all four years that I was there um, while I was in drum corps during the summer and stuff. But I, I only played in orchestra one semester when I was at IU. I didn't yeah. really care for it. You know, I thought it was yeah. kind of boring stuff, but mm-hmm. like... Most drum corps play arrangements of classical charts or Latin charts or whatever, jazz, mm-hmm. all this stuff. And like, you know, Phantom Regiment did uh, Bartok Concerto for Orchestra right. in 2001. Yeah. So I was like, oh, I wonder what that piece sounds like, the original piece. And right. I listened to it. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Absolutely. So yeah. that sort of got me into starting to explore the original pieces. Yeah. And um, now I'm playing those original pieces. And yeah. I probably would say that I love doing what I do now more than when I was doing it in drum corps. You know, I mean, I think that's obviously safe to say. It's my career. It was a formative experience, though, and it brought, exactly. you, it brought you to this place where you are, and I, I, think, it's, I think it's great to, exactly. to remember it fondly, and I, I, I love that you're still involved when you can be. Yeah, exactly. that's and, great. You know, I would, I would teach drum corps if mm-hmm. I were asked. You sure. know, I would take a couple weeks and maybe sure. do a couple yeah. weeks tour during yeah. the summer with whatever corps, but... Yeah. Um, it's nice just to be on the sideline and just enjoy Absolutely. it from you know yeah. the audience perspective. Well, I have one more question for you, and, sure. the, and the general effect score of this interview is going to be largely based on how you answer this. So, sure. it's the question we ask all of our guests, and it's because of our name of uh-huh. the podcast. So, I got to know, Travis, have you ever seen a ghost? Do you have a paranormal story you can share with our audience? I've actually never seen a ghost, and I don't know if I believe in ghosts. Mm-hmm. I just 
haven't experienced it myself. I've yep. definitely been scared. I love going to haunted houses. Mm-hmm. I think they're amazing. I like I like watching horror movies. Paranormal Activity, I yeah. think, is like one of the creepiest movies ever. Also, The Conjuring, I think, is uh-huh. fantastic. Th- those but, are good. I mean, I remember yeah. when I was in high school, I was reading the book The Shining. And I remember I like put the book down and I was going to bed mm-hmm. and I, I like ended up having this dream where it was basically like reality. So sure. I was like in my room, yeah. in bed, sleeping. And uh, the the little boy came up and like lifted my arm. And I woke up from the dream and my arm was like levitating and it uh-huh. scared the crap out of me. Uh-huh. Well, you know, Travis, if you read your Shakespeare, you know that all kings are scared to death of ghosts. So I'm not surprised you would <laughs> deny their existence. It right. makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. Well, listen, this has been great. We're going to have you on again so we can talk sure. more. Thank you so much for being a guest on Absolutely. The Ghost Light. Thanks for having me. This week, Utah Opera continues its performances of Mitch Lee's Man of La Mancha at the Capitol Theater, January 23, 25, 27, and 29. Experience the compelling tale of the knight-errant Don Quixote and his obsessive quest for the impossible dream, a dream made famous in Broadway production and on film. Tickets and information are available at utahopera.org. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced by Chad Call. Utah Symphony Utah Opera's season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>